Well, the, the text that we're dealing with, as you, you may know, uh, my plan on the, the, the schedule had been to preach on this text last Sunday, but I did not feel like I could unless we dealt with uh, Galatians 5, 13 through 15 um, in, a, in a deeper fashion, because this text, in its context, is really dealing with the whole picture that we have in the book of Galatians, which is that there are people who are trying to serve the Lord to the best of their ability, and other people have come into the church and said, unless you do this, 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 and this, you ain't good enough. And so the, the idea that Paul is dealing with here throughout for the last, we've been here since January, is that you are free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. That you are free to serve. Now, I will say that as I preached each of these sermons for the last couple of months, what I try to do as I prepare is listen to uh, other people preach on the same text just to make sure that A, I, I, I'm not off the mark, and B, to, to allow my own heart to wrestle with the conviction that God brings on me. And as I've listened to some preachers preach on the book of Galatians, it seemed to me that as Paul talked a lot about freedom, that a lot of preachers would say, now I know this is what he's saying, but be sure you don't, be sure as Paul is saying freedom, that you don't just run amok with that. And that kind of frustrated me because I, I was thinking as I was preparing, let Paul speak when he says he'll get to this. He'll get to don't let your freedom run amok. And we're there. Finally, we're there. As we have gone through this text and we've seen that the, the thrust of the book of Galatians is, is that inside of the church that we're not to burden each other with our idea of what you need to do. Do you, you get the point? Which is why last week's text was so important for us to have foundationally before we dove into this text. Last week in Galatians we read, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now we said how it seems like if Paul says, Don't use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but... The next thing you would say, but serve Jesus with all your heart, or but allow the Spirit to guide what you're doing, that sort of thing, but he doesn't. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to flesh, but serve each other in love. And last week we saw how a litmus test of where our heart really is, is how we serve each other. I was... Uh, Garrett and I were at, at a Christian event one time, and there was a, a, a guy there who's kind of a well-known dude, who really popular servant, uh, a really popular preacher. And um, at the end of this event, the, they kind of announced, everybody uh, that's here, pick up your chairs and go over there with them, please. And this particular guy uh, didn't feel like that he was called to pick up chairs, and uh, he, he didn't do it. He, 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 in fact, he went and, uh, those of you that have worked around a person like this knows exactly what I'm talking about. He kind of made himself scarce while there was some work going on. And it annoyed me that the guy did this, and so uh, I took my annoyance out on Garrett. And so I grabbed Garrett and said, come here with me, boy. And so we went, we went kind of out of earshot, and I said, let me tell you something. Two things. First of all, if I ever see you act like that, I don't care if it's 30 years from now, you realize I'm going to come out from behind a tree and hit you in the back of the head. That ain't how we act. 
And second of all, if somebody who calls themselves a minister of the gospel gets too good to serve God's people, there's a big problem. If I ever get to the point that I'm too good to mop a floor out there, or I'm too good to take out the trash, or I'm too good to go clean up a poopy toilet uh, in the nursery. If I ever get to the point that I'm too good to do that, then there's a much bigger problem. That, that is not how the people of God act. We serve each other. And whenever I do marriage counseling, I will say over and over and over and over again, I'm doing pre-marriage counseling right now for three or four couples, and we say repeatedly that you will find your joy in happiness in marriage as you serve the other person. As you are investing in your wife, you'll find your joy. As you, wife, are investing in loving and cherishing your husband, you'll find your joy. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the litmus test for where we are in our walk is how we serve each other. Because there's a lot of things that we can fake, can fake, and do fake in church. But loving each other and serving each other is really hard to fake. Because sometimes people can be annoying. I know that's shocking, but that's true. I'm just telling you. You maybe not have an experience there, but... All right, so then he says uh, a statement that I've really struggled with how to say this, and I think that it's not hyperbolic to say that this next statement is really a summation of everything that Paul has written throughout the New Testament. He said, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Really, we could go home if we could live that out. That just sums up the Christian walk. I love that the analogy that he uses, walk by the Spirit, because walking is a forward movement. See, the, the revival movement has taught us that the Christian walk happens in big jumps. That one day I'm a sinner who is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm smoking crack, I'm paying for prostitutes. I've got all this bad stuff that I'm doing. And then I come down to an altar and I cry. And then now I'm a saint. We've kind of given that impression out there. And I want to tell you that A, that's not the normative Christian walk as it's laid out in this book. And B, I don't have a B. That's just, just the A. The real Christian walk happens little by little by little, day by day by day, as you read the Bible, as you pray. It's nothing explosive. It's nothing going, woo! It's just that day by day by day, so that across your life you can see how you're tracking and becoming more like Jesus. If my job and the elder's job could be summed up in one sentence, and Chad, yes, I'm totally ripping John MacArthur's sermon this week, um, it is our job is sanctification and to make sure that all of you become a little bit more like Jesus when you come into this room. Amen. Not a huge amount, because I don't, I mean, I've raised five kids, and not one of them did I walk in and had to change their diaper and stood there at the bed and was, oh, there's a pretty little baby, and then walked out and then came in and they were working out. That didn't happen with any of my kids, where they had some boom, and then all of a sudden they're an adult. That doesn't happen. 
it's little by day by so that this happened all the time with me and my kids especially when we lived in North Carolina I would be around them every day and they would be the same kid and then we would come back to Alabama and see mom and dad and mom would say oh my gosh she's grown like a weed right because she didn't see him for a period of time, and bam. That's the same way with the Christian life. It's a walk. It happens little by little as we are in the Spirit, as we grow, as we not dependent on ourselves, because we can't make ourselves grow. No matter how much that baby is in the bassinet kicking and acting like a baby, it can't go, grow, 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 and then grow. No, it's just going to happen. You can't grow yourself. That is why we keep saying that prayer is so important. As I've studied for this, I was listening to to someone preach, and I I heard a sentence that has gripped my heart and convicted me. And I want to just throw it out there. If the only time you pray about your sin is confession after you commit it, The only time that you pray about a particular sin is when you say, God, forgive me, I did it again. If that's the only time you're praying about your sin, you're not fighting that sin. You're training your heart so that you can get away with the sin. If when you're not being convicted, you start praying, God, I don't know how to love my wife the way I need to. You commanded me in your word to love her the way Jesus loved the church. And I fail at that, God. Please change who I am, making me a new person so that I can love her the way that I need to love her. Then then I'm fighting my sin. If I blow up and say, you big loser, what are you doing? I want my sandwich when I want my sandwich. And then I walk away from that and go, God, forgive me because I got a bad attitude. I'm not fighting that sin then. I'm not saying that we don't confess our sin at all. We do. But we battle our sin day by day by day by day by day by day. And we battle how? What's the fighting position of every believer? On our knees. We battle through prayer. We battle through being in God's word. If my word abides in you. where we, If I'm struggling with anger, I memorize verses that I can use, fighter verses that I can pull out as I come across that sin so that I can battle it. And so Paul now takes everything that we've learned from the book of Galatians and in the text today gives us practical application. This is what this looks like. He does this in all of his books. In the book of Romans, he does that. In the book of Ephesians, he does it really succinctly where he's got the argument, he's got the theology that he paints, and at the end of the book of Ephesians, he goes, now this is what this looks like at your job. This is what this looks like if you're a child and you're, you're with your parents. This is what this looks like for husbands. This is what this looks like for, for wives. And he gives us a very practical application. He does that in the book of Galatians. As he's talked about living in love, living, walking that out, he then goes, now... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not satisfy the desires of the heart. And then he says, let's look at what that looks like. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. We know what they are. I love that he says it that way. The works of the flesh, you know what they are. Here's the reality. If I'm committing one of these sins, I know that I'm doing wrong. Nobody in here can claim, well, I I didn't know that pornography was bad. I thought it was okay. 
I didn't know that worrying all the time. So Paul lists out exactly what we'll see in our life if we're walking by the flesh. And we're going to kind of walk through those. And he, they're, they're divided up really into three groups. The first one is sexual sins. The very first one that he uses is sexual immorality. The Greek word for that, for that term is porneo. We know what that word is. Porneo in the, in the Greek world was any sexual sin. Homosexuality, adultery, fornication, pornography, any sexual sin at all falls under that one. And I will say that the church is sending a mixed message to the world because right now, I could rail against homosexuality from this pulpit and get a lot of amens. And I've often said, the surest way to get a bunch of amens is to preach against something that nobody in the congregation is being tempted with. Now, I'm not saying that nobody here is being tempted in that area, but I'm saying that we have a tendency to pick on things And I'll preach a lot about how homosexuality is sin, but I don't cover the fact that if you're committing adultery, it's the same sin. If you're having sex outside of marriage, it's the same sin. If you're going into a dark room with your laptop, it's the same sin. God has said, that the relationship between a man and a woman, God said it in Genesis 2. Jesus quotes him, Paul quotes him. And the picture is this. For a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's God's plan. Anything outside of that is wicked. Paul goes so far in Ephesians 6 to say, This mystery is profound. What I'm referring to is Jesus and the church. One of the reasons why marriage is such a beautiful thing that's to be held in high esteem and high honor is because the relationship that I have with my wife is the picture for the world to see the relationship between Jesus and the church. And if I go out acting like a fool out there, Or if I treat my wife with disrespect by being the kind of husband that says, shut up, woman, get me a sandwich, then that disrespects the relationship between Jesus and the church. So here Paul lumps all sexual sin together and says it's all one and the same. Sexual immorality, impurity. Impurity is within that same vein, and the idea is something that's ceremonially unclean. It just means... Doing the things that make you unclean and impure. Sensuality. The word here just means lack of restraint. You just do whatever you want to do. Ann and I were talking yesterday. I've noticed that in the last month, there have been, in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, there have been three different articles that I've read where someone essentially said this. Ten years ago, I told people that I was gay... And then maybe five years ago, I told people that I was bisexual. And now that I understand the term, my, the term that I use is pansexual. That I'm pansexual. Now what that means is, I get to do whatever I want to do. That's where the enemy wants you to go, period. 
That's the direction that we were headed the whole time. Because when we restrain ourselves the way the Bible tells us to, we're obeying God. When we do whatever we want to do in this area, especially we're telling God, I'm going to do what I want to do, forget you. And so the ultimate one, the summation here is he says, sensuality, which is just lack of restraint. I'm going to do what I want to do. The next sins that Paul lists out are religious sins. Any attempt to attain the spiritual from human activities. And the two that he lists are interesting. One is idolatry. Martin Luther said the human heart is an idol factory. We never get a check in the box that we're done with idolatry. It seems like every time I think that I've, I've conquered one idol, another one will pop up. It's like privet. There's no getting rid of it. A few of you men who fought privet in your yard know exactly what I'm talking about. You just can't get rid of it. And idolatry is anything in my heart that I long for more than I long for God. My children can be idols. My car can be an idol. My phone can be an idol. And just as sure as I slay one, the enemy's going to raise up another one. A lot of times whenever I've taught kids, I'll, we'll talk about idolatry in, in the Old Testament. And they'll see the pictures of you know, the golden calves and, and, and the, the, the Baal worship. And they think that idol worship is only falling down and bowing to some golden statue. In some cultures, that's the case. The enemy that we fight is really smart. In some cultures, that's exactly what it is. But in our culture, I would say the biggest idol that we worship is um, self-reliance. We want to do what we want to do. We worship ourselves. If we had an idol that we could stand up and fall down and worship, it'd be a big letter I. I worship me. The next one that he lists is sorcery. Now, a lot of us would go, ha ha, I don't have a problem with that. That's not my struggle. I'm not doing any sorcery because when I hear that, I'm thinking, you know, chicken bones. You were, okay, let's see what's going to happen tomorrow kind of thing. Well, the Greek word that Paul uses here for sorcery is pharmakeo. That should be a term that you're fairly familiar with. It's where we get the English word pharmacy. We, I honestly believe, the more that I've studied, because I, I really have struggled with the sin of drug addiction and wondered why is it that it has such a grip on our culture. It breaks my heart to talk to some of the, the guys who are on the football team and just count in my mind how many of them don't have a mom and dad. They're being reared by their grandparents, or in some cases their great-grandparents, because drug addiction has taken their parents. And so I, I read a book that, that it was really hard to read. It wasn't, well, I can't say this because it'll be on the thing. Um, it's called <clears throat> Addiction is Worship. And that when we allow an addiction to overtake us, that that's actually an act of worship, that we're allowing something to control us and pull us. So, in the New Testament, 
that pharmakeo was always translated as sorcery or witchcraft because in the first century what people would do is they would, they would use natural opiates, they would use uh, literally fissures in the earth that would cause gas to come up, different things they would use to go into a, a state in their mind that was different from day-to-day life and then think, oh my gosh, I'm having such a spiritual experience. If we go back to the first statement that one of the greatest idols in our culture is I, then I would say our worship ceremony for the idolatry of I would be drug addiction. And so be afraid of that. Be careful of that. Check your heart in that area. Now, all of those sins, there's a lot of us who grew up in the church that can look at all the sins that we just lifted off and go, "Mm mm-hmm, oh yeah, you preach it, you bring it. Now we're going to get into some stuff as he lists out these relational sins that's going to be stepping on some of our toes, mine included. God has really convicted me. Enmity. Enmity just means a bad attitude. There's no more amen. This is an oh me. This is where I struggle with this. If I'm having a bad day, Ann knows I had a bad day because I'm a jerk. My kids know that I have a bad day. If we are walking around with a chip on our shoulder and we just have a bad attitude that means anything you say to me is the wrong thing to say, any way you act toward me, there are some people, and I, I, it's this way in the church, it's this side way out of the church, that aren't happy unless they're angry about something. They're looking for something to be angry about. If you get a phone call and the first words out of their mouth is, that preacher, you probably need to hang up. I'm just saying. And for me, when I get a phone call and they start talking about the music, I don't know why everybody wants to complain about the music to me, because I can't do anything about it. I can't sing. I can't play the radio if it's cloudy. Why are you griping to me about this? And then people will call other people, people will, will call Jeff, people will call Don and complain about my preaching. They don't, I wish they would call me and complain about my preaching and vice versa. But there are some people that just want to gripe. Am I, are we being honest here? I'm not getting a lot of amens. I'm starting to get confused. <laughs> there are some people, and, and Paul is saying, that is wicked. That is evil. That is is just, that's, do you realize that that's in the same list with homosexuality and adultery? Enmity. Strife. So, enmity is those hateful attitudes. Strife is those hateful actions. That passive-aggressive, fine. When they get rid of that preacher, then I'll write my tie check. When they start doing it my way, I'll work in the nursery. Those kind of actions that we take, Paul is saying, that's wicked, that's evil. Jealousy. I cannot believe that she's driving that car. Mm, That ain't right. We all know what jealousy is. I can't really, if God's convicting you of that, then then, the altar is open. Um, Fits of anger, those outbursts of anger. We, in our culture, we call it venting. Did you know the book of Proverbs says it's the fool that vents all that is in his heart? 
Have you ever done that? I've done that. Gear out, shut up. I don't need, we don't need any, anywhere. But yeah, everything's going wrong. And let me tell you what. I am sick and tired of this person coming in here and ah! fits of anger. That's in the flesh, and that's wicked. Now i got to fold my jacket inside in. A bunch of people making me do that. Rivalries. We see that in the church. We just need to cancel CR because it's taking all of the money. We need to put all that money in something else. We need to do this. We need to do that. The jealousy, rivalry, dissensions. There are, just like we said, there are some people who are not happy unless they're angry. There are some people who aren't happy unless there's drama. I had a conversation with somebody two months ago, and they made the mistake of asking me two or three times what I thought about their Facebook post. The first time, I tried, I said, well, you know, it, it, it's there, it's online. And then the second time, I said, well, yeah, you may want to think about things before you hit, hit sin. And then the third time, they said, well, really, what do you think about it? I said, dude, you need to get a journal because nobody cares what your thoughts are on this subject that you just wrote a page and a half about. All you're doing is picking at a scab. You need to shut that down. It's not helping you. It's not helping anybody in the, that's having the discussion. I've, I've tell, told you, I have decided. I will not argue or debate anything on social media. If you want to talk to me about it, if you want to come sit down and talk with me, or we'll get on the phone and talk about it, because it does, I've never seen these words written on Facebook. You were right. I was wrong. Thank you for informing me. Never seen that. Never seen it. Have you? No, it's just the argument gets louder and louder and louder. And you said, uh uh-uh, you said, I can't believe you used that. I can't. Back and forth, back and forth. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy. And then he closes with drunkenness and orgies and things like these. So it's not an exhaustive list. He's not just saying, okay, now if you can avoid these. And one of the things I'm afraid of with lists is we crave a new law. We crave something in us craves a set of rules. And so whenever there's a list, I fear like people are going to sit down with that list and and put little check boxes out beside it and say, okay, so I'm not having an orgy. I'm not drunk right now. I'm not dividing anything right now. And so they think if they work the list, then they're good. But he closes with says, and things like these. And so he's listed all these things that are evidence of the works of the flesh. Now, notice that when he describes the works of the flesh, he calls it work. And then he describes the fruit of the Spirit as fruit. Okay, we've turned a corner here because there's a big difference. Work is exhausting, isn't it? Work will drain you. Fruit, all a vine has to do to make sure that it bears fruit is stay attached Jesus said in John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide with you in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. Now we love that verse. That means I can get me a new truck and a pony. The next verse says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. 
That idea of abiding is so rich. If that vine is attached to that rootstock, it's drawing its energy and its sustenance from that rootstock, it's going to bear fruit. And so what Paul is saying here is that stuff in the flesh, that's going to exhaust you. Over time, that's going to crush you. You're going to collapse under the weight of it. It's going to draw you out. But the fruit of the Spirit is something that is beneficial for everybody. I love fruit. In fact, Anne yesterday went to the grocery store. She came in. She had a thing of blackberries and she had a thing of strawberries. They never made it to the refrigerator. And me, Ruthie, and Lizzie all had blackberry juice going, I don't, I don't know what happened. I've just, I've never seen anything like this. They disappeared. And, and so fruit is something we all want. We love it. It tastes good. It, it's un, unlike Smarties. It nourishes you. Fruit is awesome. Fruit doesn't require effort. And so he lists the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice that the fruit of the Spirit is not something that we can work up. He's not saying that the fruit of the Spirit is love, so what you need to do is sit around and go, I will love, I will love, I will love, I will love. That as you focus on Christ, as you focus on walking in the Spirit, that this is the fruit you're going to bear. You're going to love. Love is a crazy word. You know, I know I've said it from the pulpit before. Our culture has so lied to us about what love means. Love is something I fall into. Love is those little, little butterflies I get in my stomach. And we all know those butterflies fade. Again, not, not for you, baby. <laughs> love is a, Real love in the Bible is a decision to care more about another person's wants and needs than I do about my own. Real love is there's one more ho-ho in the box and you let her have it. (laughs) Love. Joy. Joy. Something that no matter what the circumstances are, you can, that thing deep down inside of you that says, Jesus is still on the throne. I've been to funerals that were filled with joy. Been to lots of funerals that were filled with joy. Tommy Carton's funeral, we danced. I mean, I, I grew up Baptist, so I can't dance. But I kind of wiggled. <laughs> when someone goes home to be with Jesus, when we walk through that valley of the shadow of death, when we hurt, when the world seems to be collapsing around us, if we're drawing our sustenance from God, there's still joy there. I love going and seeing. Granny Eubanks or, or uh, Miss Whaley, people who from the outside the world would say there's nothing there to be joyful about. And yet you sit down with them and all they can talk about is how awesome their Savior has been and how faithful he's been for the last 70 years. I want that kind of joy. And that's a fruit of the Spirit. That's not something we can conjure up. That's not something we're going to get from a movie or a, a, a meme or a, a, a vine or any of that stuff. Love, joy, peace. Oh, how we lack peace in our culture. Everything's churning and boiling all the time. But one of the fruit of the Spirit is that we rest in Him. 
Love, joy, peace, patience. God, I want patience, and I want it now. Is that, am I the only one that has that spirit? I will tell you that I read about patience being one of the fruit of the Spirit, and I go, Lord, I'm, I'm missing it. Because I guarantee you right now, if I were to go through the McDonald's drive through by the time I got out the other end, I'm going to be spitting. I want my Big Mac with fries. No! You idiot. How hard is it just to fill an order? It's a number one superside, baby. Let's go. You should have them lined up. I want my fat and I want it now. I got all kinds of stories I could tell, but I'm already behind the eight ball here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Just being kind to each other. Paul says that we are to consider others better than ourselves. To put everybody, every, every story we hear, every situation that we have, interaction we have with each other. The Bible commands us to consider them better than ourselves and to think the best. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But we don't. We always think the worst. Do you know how many people have called me because they thought that I was the one that had an affair in Glencoe? And I've told them, I am running around with the secretary and there ain't nothing you can do about it. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, my wife is working as a secretary right now. <laughs> Some of you out here were like going, wait, what? <laughs> uh, we, had a, we had a guy, a repair guy that came in that was working on, I think he was working on the sprinklers, and I did not realize that he wouldn't know that the secretary was my wife. And so he's working, you know, and I'm talking to him. And at some point I'm like, okay, babe, uh, I need to go do X, Y, Z. Gave her a hug, kiss on the cheek, I'm out. And then I, took a, I looked up at this, where he's on the ladder, and he's looking at me like, what the heck is going on here? I'm like, she's my wife. It's okay. <laughs> I don't even know where I was now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That the things that we expose, that we hunger for are good. Faithfulness, gentleness, and finally, self-control. And I, I'm, I got to park on self-control just a minute because um, I, I will be honest. Uh, the reason why I started preaching through the book of Galatians is for my quiet time, I was doing a word study on the fruit of the Spirit, and I got stuck on self-control. Some of your Bibles will translate that as discipline. Because I had a hard time reconciling being disciplined, which means doing what you're supposed to do even when you don't want to do it, with that being something that I don't strive for that comes from the Holy Spirit. I really struggled with that in my quiet time, and what came out of that ended up being the sermon series that we've preached through through the last three months. Discipline is a concept that we don't think of a lot in our culture. I was in Jeff's Sunday school class when I first was exposed to this, and it was probably, what, six months ago, he was teaching through the fruit of the Spirit, and when we got to discipline, he said, when you hear the word discipline, what do you think? And everybody in the room, no offense to all you guys, nobody got it right. And I say that as a Marine, 
Because here's what I heard from my first minute on Paris Island. Get some discipline in your body. Which meant that if you're standing there like this and a sandfly lands on your nose and it's crawling on your face, you don't kill it. That you just stand there because you were told to stand there. If you're told to hold an M16 at port arms with the slide open for, and you stand there and after about three minutes you're doing this number... And then somebody up and down that line is going to let that bolt go home and you hear that clack and you know that everybody's on their face for the next 30 minutes. The phrase that they would use would discipline yourself. And so for me, that word has always meant something that I conjured up in me. I use that word to preach to myself. When it's 4.45 in the morning and my alarm goes off and I want to hit snooze, my inner drill instructor will say, discipline yourself, boy, get up. Whenever I, there's something that I don't want to do, and I know I've got to do it, I say to myself, I literally preach to myself at that moment, you need to get some discipline. You need to do what you're supposed to do. So that's something that always I've tried to conjure up in myself. So the idea that discipline, restraint, self-control... Me doing the things that I'm supposed to do comes from the Holy Spirit and not something that I work up inside of me has been a really hard concept for me to live out and a really hard concept for me to be dependent on the Holy Spirit for that. And where I found that intersection of self-discipline and the Holy Spirit comes from, again, in prayer if I'm tempted to lust, I'm looking on Facebook and that sidebar comes up with some, some picture that I don't need to be looking at or thinking about. And in my mind, I'm tempted to lust. If I sit there and in my head go, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, or don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, and I try to white knuckle my way through that sin, A, I almost always fail. And B, if I do succeed, who gets the glory? Me, because I want it. If you struggle with alcoholism and you all of a sudden are sitting there going, man, I need a drink. I need a drink bad. And you go, I will not do it. 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 Either A, you're going to fail and you're going to feel miserable and like you've lost when you fail. Or B, if you succeed, you're going to go, I am the bomb. And both of those are wicked attitudes. The enemy wins either way. But if I'm tempted to lust and at that moment I fall to my face and say, the enemy's attacking me, God, and I can't do this. I can't win here. I can't put discipline in my body, God. Then who gets the glory? God gets the glory because I couldn't do it. I'm not pos- it's not possible for me to overcome If I'm tempted to go get a beer and I say, God, no, please, oh God, protect me. This is going to destroy my family. This is going to destroy my life. This is going to take everything away from me. Don't let the enemy overcome. Don't let the enemy. And I get on the phone with one of my brothers in Christ and say, hey, plead with me, brother, right now that I win. Then when you're victorious, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. 
And I will promise you that if you do that, the enemy's going to slack up on tempting you in that area because he does not want God to be glorified. We just don't fight sin. We try to put the discipline in our body. And one of the most revolutionary things in my own personal Christian walk is focusing on the fact that my self-control is comes not from me, but it is a fruit of the Spirit that comes from me abiding in Him. I need Him. I'm dependent. When I went... I honestly don't remember if I used it here or in, on Wednesday night. As we talked about some of the financial struggles in the church, and people go, why has God done this? Why has God allowed this to occur? I, I, I've, this is what I've said. As I have been in ministry now for, for several years, um, whether it's a ministry as large as the International Mission Board, which is the largest mission-sending organization in the world, we have, what, about 5,000 missionaries? I think $200 million a year budget. Um, every year, we would fall on our face and beg God, to, as Lottie Moon came, for God to provide. Every year, it was so tight. We didn't know if we were going to be sending missionaries home. We didn't know if we were going to be able to afford Bibles. God kept it tight to a little church of 33 it just seemed like we had just enough money to pay the bills every month. And we had to be on our knees praying for God to provide. We had to make wise decisions. We had to look at things. But we have to pray. The analogy that I use is this. When my kids were little, I had two different flavors of kids. I had one flavor of kids that was Emily was one. And I'm going to use you as an example. Um, if I'm walking through Walmart with Emily and I round a corner so that she doesn't see me, I will know it immediately because there will be a scream that will echo through the halls of Walmart from end to end. Dad, you've left me! <laughs> and I'm like, stick my head back around the end camp and go, baby, I'm right here. Come here. But I did have kids that if you turned around twice, they were gone. They were halfway down Megan, running wide open. <laughs> One of my kids, we literally got home, realized we had left him up here, and it took a debate. Anne's like, hey, where's the kid? And I'm like, well, they were with you. And she's like, no, they were with you, stupid. Where's that my child? And I'm like, well, I guess I left him at the church. And so I ran back up here to, to get them, and they never realized they were left. They were just doing their thing. They're like, I'm like, and I never told them. That's why I'm not saying their name now. I don't want them to realize that I left them. <laughs> I never, I'm like, hey, come on, get in the car. And they're like, okay, cool. And they got in the car, and we went home. And then we walked in the door, and he's like, how are you? And I'm like, just shut up, shut up. They don't know. They don't know. Shush. Keep it on the down low. So I have two flavors of kids. That child that would run off, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the world would eat them alive if they got out there. There are some freaks out there. There are people that will do wicked, evil things to children. And so there were times that when that child ran off, I would make their life very uncomfortable. I don't tell anybody, but I'd wear them out. I would say, you be on this leg right now. And I would make them uncomfortable because I knew that they needed to be protected from everything else out there. And I loved them. And I wanted them right on my leg hugging. I wanted them holding on. Because I could protect them from those bad things. 
God knows we're the same way. That if we didn't have any troubles in our life, we would wander off. We would get into stuff that we couldn't get out of. But God puts little little pains in our life, little things in our life, so that we go running and go, Daddy, I need you. We're dependent. We've got to have him. We're holding on to his leg. Daddy, help me, help me, help me. And when we're doing that, we're safe. So he keeps us dependent on him. Because when we are leaning on his strength, nothing can stop us. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. But when we're leaning on our strength, we've got no power, nothing. We're like a little child with a plastic sword thinking we're going to take on the dragon. So if we look at these lists, don't look at these lists and go check, 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 check in your mind or your heart. Look at these lists and see that Paul is saying one is work. It will wear you out. It will destroy you. If you lean on God, you you are dependent on Him. You abide in Him. These are the things that are going to naturally flow. So as we come to a time of invitation, if you're not seeing this fruit in your life, if you're seeing the work that comes from the flesh, this altar is open. Start fighting sin. Start calling on Him to help you. See, Jesus said that our Holy Spirit is our teacher. If you're in a situation where you go, I don't know how to pray, I don't know how to read my Bible, I can promise you that if you were to come down to this altar and say, God, help me love you more, help, I believe, help my unbelief, that's a prayer God will answer. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, you're not seeing these fruit because you don't have the Holy Spirit, I would love nothing more than to show you how to meet Him. And if you're in this room and you're looking for a church family, we would love to have you join us. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you, thank you, thank you for this particular passage. Lord, use this this text to speak into our hearts, to speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.